Have you ever heard of Ignatius? There's actually a few different Ignatiuses in church history. Um, there's Ignatius of Loyal, and there's Ignatius of Antioch. Now, and Ignatius of Loyal is a lot more well-known in church history. It came later. But Ignatius of Antioch is the one I want to talk about today. He was a second-century church father. That's what I want to talk about today. Uh, hey guys, this is the Construction Monk Podcast. I'm your host, Jay Randall Ori, and we're starting a new series today called On Being Church. And today's episode is Multiplicity. So I have been in conversation with a lot of friends and people, and I've just been thinking a lot lately about where the church is at and what the church should be, right? Um... You know, it's just something that I pay attention to. I'm really interested in culture and church culture in particular. And I have my master's in humanity, so I've studied culture. And it's just it's just my passion. I'm just really interested in culture and human behavior and group belonging and all these things and power dynamics. And, um, of course, I've just been in church my whole life, right? I feel like I was born in church. Uh, my dad was a pastor. I was baptized when I was nine, when I was... Nine, I was also with my family, missionaries in Australia for two years. I mean, I'm just, and before that, uh, when I was, let's see, six, six, seven, and eight, my dad attended Bible college. And so we lived on a Bible college. I, I just lived and breathed church, church culture, and like being at a Bible college where pastors are trained. And I went to Bible college out of high school. I've been to Bible college over eight years myself, not including the three years as a child. And of course, my dad's been a was a pastor for over twenty years. Um, when I was in college the first time, straight out of high school, I was in a music group called Impact Brass and Singers. <laughs> not to not a thing anymore. It's been long since um, disbanded. Really, it was a kind of a group uh, organized by the college, Ozark Christian College. Uh, to travel to churches and put on a program and kind of promote the school as well. We were like a 20-member group. It was a pretty big production, and I was the sound guy. But um, we traveled churches. We would travel hundreds of churches every year. And so even then, I was just like soaking in all these different church flavors. It was really fascinating to me. I've just always been fascinated by church. I've always been a part of churches, involved with churches, kind of, of course, seen behind the scenes in many ways because my dad was a pastor and, you know, I was like preaching my first sermon at the age of 17 um, my, at my dad's church. I've led small groups. I've led worship. I've led youth worship. I've just been involved in church my whole life. And as someone who's interested in culture and power dynamics and group belonging and human behavior, I've just observed the nature and character and flavor of church everywhere I've gone. I love visiting churches. I love seeing what different churches do. I love learning about different denominations, how they view things, you know, how different denominations organize their hierarchy of leadership. You know, some churches are independent and they're just self-governing. Other churches have a very strict hierarchy of leadership and, and they can move pastors from church to church. They just have a lot of, some, some church organizations have a lot of hierarchy and structure and authority and others are very loose, you know. Some are just local, elder-led. You know, even, even local churches can be elder-led or pastor-led. 
congregational where you vote others. It's like the uh, the um, larger organization, the out-of-town organization decides who your pastor is and that they get involved in governance. I mean, there's just so many different ways that we can approach church and that church has been approached throughout the years, throughout the centuries. And then I've studied the history of the church over the last 2,000 years. And I, of course, read the Bible. Like, I just have a great fascination and interest in church culture. But what I want to talk about in this series is, like, I want to try to flesh out what is the church and what should the church be and how should the church look? You know, what should our fellowship look like? You know, like church isn't something you go to. Church is something you are. We are the church. You don't go to church. Church comes to you. No. <laughs> really, um, we are called to be the church. And when we fellowship, yes, that's great. We're supposed to get together to learn, to encourage one another, to find camaraderie and fellowship. But like, we're, all, we're the church all the time, 24-7. We're the church when we drive our cars, when we go to the grocery store, when we go home. And like how we treat our kids, our wife, our husband, how we treat our neighbors, you know, how we treat our boss or our employees, how we treat uh, our government or our attitudes, you know, our attitudes towards our government. Like everything should reflect the fact that we are the church. We are little Christs in the world. We are the church. We don't go to church. Like I think like my idea of church is all-encompassing. It's big. It's 24-7. It's all the time. Like, even when I sleep, sometimes God's involved. <laughs> like, I've had dreams. It's like, my concept of church is everything all the time. But I think sometimes our concept of church is just place we go. It's, we have a boxed-in idea of church, which is literally in a box, and also structurally in a box, and also theologically in a box. And there's so many church boxes sometimes, I think, man, let's blow some of those boxes apart. So, you know, I hope to blow some boxes apart. I hope to challenge you in this series to think about what church should be and personally what it looks like for you to be the church and also what kind of church you want to be a part of, right? You know, I think we, you know, I'll get back to Ignatius, by the way. I haven't forgotten about Ignatius of Antioch. But I think that a lot of times we're so passive in our church, in our concept of church, in our, in our participation with church, right? Like we, the reason we go to church is because church has already been established, right? Like you, you I'm sure as an, if you're an American or a Westerner, like you have like hundreds of flavors of church to choose from. There's so many denominations, like even in your own little local city town, there's probably a lot of different churches you could go to, right? And so the idea sometimes is like, well, church is already established. It's already out there. It's like a product. And I get to pick which product I like. Like when you go to Walmart and you're trying to pick a microwave and there's 20 on the shelf and you can get a red one, a white one, a black one, a chrome one. You can get a big one, a small one. You can get one with all the bells and whistles or you can get the basic. And we approach church the same way. Like we're consumers, what church fits our needs, fits our flavor, fits our taste, fits our beliefs, our ideas. And so church can become a consumer, 
kind of thing for us and we're just passive consumers and the product is already put together and we don't get to actually have much influence in the product itself we just get to choose which product we want and you know how much we're going to be involved with it right like even like with a microwave you buy it but how much are you going to use it how are you going to use it what are you going to do with it like that's how we view church we have a very passive consumeristic approach towards church and so therefore i think we don't have a concept of shaping church and actually helping form church communities church is something other people do for us and we go and we participate but it's already set out and i would also say at many churches that is the case like most churches I would say I've ever been to are always, always begging and pleading for their congregates to get involved. And like there's the, my church has these cards in the pews and, and it's like these different ways you can get involved. And most churches do. They want you to get engaged, right? There's small groups. There's, there's lots of stuff beyond the Sunday morning. Most churches, there's events, there's programs, there's youth group, there's small group. But like there's these cards, right? And you can check the box, how to get involved. And, but it's so, again, it's already laid out for you, right? And while most churches really struggle to get people involved, I would say a lot of churches also don't allow people to be that involved. And that's been my experience. Like, you know, I've always done the stuff. I've, like I said, I've, I've preached sermons my, because my dad was a pastor. Uh, one church I went to was an elder-led church, and uh, there were two preaching elders, and I was on, I was on task, or I was on route to become a third preaching elder at that church, and then we moved, and it didn't happen. But, like, I've just been involved in churches in many different ways. I've led small groups, but most of the churches I've been to, the level of involvement I desired was not available for many different reasons. You know, one, I was never, didn't have a degree. I, d- I didn't have the, uh, a Bible degree to do some of the things that most churches would require a Bible degree to do, to preach, to lead. Um, I've just always found a lot of closed doors when, it ca- when it's come to my particular desires and calling. So I think churches, in some ways, really crave involvement. And in other ways, there's a glass ceiling when it comes to involvement. And there's the pre-prescribed boxes you can check when it comes to the church box, but you can't write in your own box. You know how, like, when you were a kid and you sent that note to the girl you really liked when you were in second grade and you were like, do you like me? And there was two boxes and one said yes and one said no. And she, you're like, this is maybe not your personal experience, but you've heard of this. Like she wrote in a third box that said maybe, and she checked that and you were like, darn it. <laughs> what? You can't write in your own box. Churches are often that way. They're like, you can't write in your own box on the cue card in the back of the pew when it comes to how and what you can do here. It's pre-prescribed. It's boxed in. You can't break out of the box. A lot of times that's been my experience. I think that's true. Churches are like, oh, we really need people to serve in the nursery, to serve in the programs, to help, you know, be a cog in the machine of church, right? But it's like, well, hey, what if I, what if I have a specific calling from God to serve a specific way? And what if there's not a box for that? Well, my experience is most churches have said, well, if it's not in the box, if there's no box for that, then I'm sorry, but we don't need it and we don't want it. You know, 
thank you, but no thank you. Um, I said I would get back to Ignatius. I will get back to Ignatius. I'm trying to remember that. But my point is, I think sometimes, oftentimes, we go to church and we... We don't have a concept of being the church. And I think the way church is structured is a big part of that. I don't think churches are often structured to raise people up, to really grow people to a place of discovering their giftings and how those giftings fit within the local church body. And we're gonna, we'll get into some scriptures that talk about the church as a body where all the members are really leaning into their calling and doing their part and helping build the church up to be what it's supposed to be. We'll get to that. But first, I want to get back to Antioch, or um, Ignatius of Antioch. So he was a second century dude. He was one of the church fathers. I think these were called the apostolic fathers. Uh, and, and in many ways, a lot of these second century guys had direct contact with the first century people you know about, like Paul and John, the 12 apostles, Peter, you know. So that these second century apostolic fathers were called apostolic because it comes from the word apostle, because they actually had direct contact with the apostles. And so they were leaders, and but they had this kind of unique and really cool position because they had been trained and taught and commissioned by the original apostles. So they were called the Apostolic Fathers. Ignatius was one. Polycarp was another. Uh, I can't remember. Um, was it Oregon? No. Oregon was later. I think he was 3rd century. Anyway, so Ignatius of Antioch was one of the Apostolic Fathers. He was, you know, he had had real-life contact with the original apostles. Isn't that cool? <laughs> But man, he, so there's a couple of things that he kind of did that were noteworthy. Uh, he wrote some letters. He actually wrote, he was arrested for being a Christian. It wasn't uncommon at that time. Uh, Hadrian was the emperor at the time, and there was not universal persecution of the church at that time. It didn't, that didn't come to about the third century under, I think it was Diocletian. I could be pronouncing that wrong, or I could have that name a little bit wrong. But he was an emperor, and he actually instituted universal persecution of Christians in the church. But uh, in the second century, that wasn't the case. There was localized persecution, and Ignatius of Antioch fell under some local persecution. Now, normally, this is, it's really interesting. His story is interesting. Normally, if you were arrested by local Roman authorities, you were executed, or you were imprisoned or executed locally, right? For some reason, he was taken to Rome. Now, it wasn't unusual for people to be taken to Rome as kind of trophies to be thrown into the games, or executed in Rome. It was like it was like a you know we have in America we have like misdemeanors and we have then we have federal um, crimes, right? So like federal crimes, if in the Roman Empire you'd be taken to Rome to be executed, and sometimes you'd be thrown into the Colosseum to be torn apart by lions and crazy, you know, just like Rome was vicious. They they instituted and maintained their order viciously with great austerity and might. And swift judgment. Anyway, so for some reason, um, Ignatius was taken to Rome. Now, also unusual was normally you'd be taken straight to Rome and executed or whatever punishment carried out, but he wasn't. So when he was arrested, he was taken by, you know, a gaggle of soldiers, but they went on the circuitous route. They just went all over the place with him. A lot of 
people, we don't know why, but a lot of people think maybe he was just a part of a larger mission, and so they were going to these other towns to do things, and he happened to be one of the first they picked up, and so he had this long, took this long route to Rome, but in the meantime, he, he was given a lot of freedom, and he visited a lot of churches on his way to being martyred, to being killed. And so he got to meet with a lot of churches. One of the things, uh, one of the things he did, one of the main things he did was he reorganized churches. As he went on his route to be killed in Rome, he had this great desire to reorganize the structure of churches. One of the main things he did in that reorganization was appoint one bishop. Now, in Scripture, where you see the word bishop, you can also input elder or overseer. They all come from the same Greek word. They had this idea of, you know, elder. We we have this capital E, elder, or capital B, bishop. But these are people who were just literally more mature Christians, like when Paul organized the church and his mission, you know, um, as a part of his missionary journeys, and later he came back and visited churches and he tried to kind of organize them, he appointed elders. Now, this wasn't a title. This was a place of, this was, a, this was just a way of Paul to say, hey, these guys are the most mature in your church, so these guys really should, should be kind of more in, in, not in charge, but more about the care and keeping of the flock and the tending of the flock and like these are your elders it doesn't mean that they're in charge and and they toe the line it just means that these are the guys that have the most maturity spiritually speaking wisdom and so like if there's matters of dispute or if there's you know issues these are the guys that should really take charge and lead the way but elder just really meant a more mature person but get this Jesus what did he do? His model was 12 apostles to lead the church. Paul followed that model when he established leaders in the church. He, did, he established a multiplicity of elders to lead churches. That's why this episode is called Multiplicity. Right? Paul, both Jesus and Paul thought it was a good idea to have a multiplicity of mature leaders guiding a church. Not one. Now, Ignatius, for some reason in the 2nd century, decided... Not to, he decided to do the opposite. He decided to appoint one supreme leader in every church, one bishop. I don't know where he got this idea, but he did. And that's what he did. So he, that, he forever changed the culture of church by establishing this idea of, hey, churches should have one main leader, one big, like really, really super mature elder who's in charge. That was Ignatius of Antioch. One of the other things he's known for is he's one of the first ones to use the word universal to refer to the church, the universal church. That's where we get the term the Catholic church. Catholic just means universal. I think Catholic is probably a Latin transliteration because it's not the Roman universal church. It's the Roman Catholic church. And now it's, this, it's the oldest you know, kind of institutional church we have. Uh, it became... It became Catholic in the second century, you could say, and it became Roman in the late third century when Constantine made it officially, the, or the religion of Rome, yeah, the official religion of Rome. Like, man, the church has been through so many changes throughout its history, structurally speaking. Some of those changes are probably good. Some of them were probably necessary and helpful for the times that they were made in. But here's something about history and culture is it's, it's compounding it's like, um, it's like the story of the wife who always cut 
the the end of the ham like she would have a, a leg of of ham she would always cut a big chunk off it was like a, it was like a thanksgiving tradition she'd put it in she would cut the big part of the meat off that was still usable throw it in the trash and she would bake the ham and one day her husband said why do you do that like you're wasting meat and she's like well i don't know that's what my mom did that's kind of the thanksgiving tradition and so she's curious she called her mom she's like mom why do you cut this big portion of the ham off throw it in the trash it's it's still good she's like i don't know that's what my my mom did and so this lady called her grandmother and said, Grandma, why do you cut this big portion of the ham off and throw it in the trash as a part of Thanksgiving tradition? She's like, oh, well, I had a small oven and a small pan. <laughs> Sometimes church traditions, church structure, it's that way. It's like, well, why do we do this? Well, I don't know, but they did it a thousand years ago. They decided they needed to do this, and we've done it ever since. And maybe a thousand years ago it was necessary in the moment for a time, but Maybe now we just do it because we, we've always done it and that's the way it's always been. But have you ever stopped to think about why the church is structured the way it is? Well, one of the things I can tell you is in the second century, a guy named Ignatius of Antioch decided there should be one bishop, one leader of the church. And it's been that way ever since. One bishop. Jesus and Paul thought there should be a multiplicity of mature people leading, teaching pastoring the church. Interesting. A lot of other changes happened when the church became co-opted by Rome. A lot of changes have happened throughout the years, and we'll continue to talk about some of those things. Good or bad, the church has gone through a lot of iterations and changes and adaptations over the years. I think it's important at this point to stop and say, well, are all those necessary? Are they still working? Is the way the church is structured, imagined, envisioned, and enacted, is it good? Well, where is the church at right now? The church is in crisis right now. Maybe not your specific church. Maybe not churches everywhere. I mean, I would say third world churches are being persecuted. First world churches are falling apart. They're losing traction left and right in culture. First world Western churches are suffering from complacency. Third world churches like in China and in the Middle East are suffering from persecution. But guess what? Those churches are growing. Russia, China, they've persecuted the church for hundreds of years now. And those churches are exploding. And in the West, the churches have been privileged, wealthy, comfortable, and they're shrinking. They're dying. They're in crisis. Like... You think America's bad if you live in America. Europe. I mean, there are entire countries now that are just like, no, we're not Christian. There's no, no, we don't do this thing anymore. Yeah, the churches are nice historical monuments of an ancient past. But no. There are, sec there are purely secular European cultures now. America is t trending that way. I heard one statistic recently. It was a poll. I don't have the details, but... They said 61% of Americans now consider themselves Christians and only, or 65%, and only 31% of those consider themselves dedicated Christians. That's shocking. Like, maybe it's time to stop and say how we're doing church, how we're being church isn't working. Maybe it's time to stop and look at how we are doing church and being the church. Maybe we need some changes. Maybe we need to look at some things from the past. Consider 
Maybe we need to take back in some things we've thrown out as the church has progressed. Maybe this idea of a multiplicity of leaders is a good idea, not just one guy on the stage with a microphone telling everybody what to believe, casting the vision for everyone. Maybe a top-down, one-person kind of control of the church isn't the best. Maybe it would work in some situations, maybe not. But part of my point is the box we've accepted as church, maybe... Maybe we don't need to just be stuck in the box and we can't really ask the questions. Is this the way that church should be? Or is this the way my church should be? My church, um, I, I think I talked about those cue cards, right? Where you can check, you can get involved, nursery, youth. You can be an usher. You can be a greeter. You can be try to be in the praise band, but you can't just play the, the cymbal or the, or the cowbell. You got to actually have some musical talent. Like there's those boxes, right? Um, and our, the card says, everybody gets to play. It's not always been my experience. It's everybody gets to play as long as you want to check a box. But what if your giftings are outside the box? Well, what are your giftings? Is your church helping you discover your gift? fan it into flames, cultivate it, and then give space for it to be expressed and, and exercised within the church body? Like, is your calling and your gifting working with kids in the nursery? Cleaning up the church after the service? Serving communion? Is that a calling or is that just a pre-prescribed role in the big box church? Are you just checking a box from a list or are you really searching out your personal passion and calling and trying to live that out in the church? Like, there's a big difference between pre-prescribed roles in the function of an institutional gathering and, and building and a person who's really leaning in and saying, God, what have you put in me to be and do as a Christian? And how can I do that and serve in my church using this specific calling, this specific passion, which which you've created me for, which you've planted in me, and which you want to draw out of me. Like, man, there's a big difference between the unique calling God has for you as a Christian, as a member of a church, and the pre-prescribed boxes you can check on the cue card in the back of the pew on Sunday morning. Right? I've done, I've done that. I've checked the boxes. But I've also experienced the fact that, or the, the reality that my calling doesn't always have space in churches to be exercised. It's often rejected. It's often squelched. It's rarely, if ever, been cultivated, seen, drawn out, and given space to be exercised. That's for sure. I think part of that has to do with this one thing, with, with Ignatius of Antioch, that he decided there should be one supreme leader in a church instead of a multiplicity of leaders. And so, like, practically speaking, if there's one leader, and that person is the leader, they're the vision caster, they set the tone, they, they create the mission statement, you know, they're more like the, the CEO of a business than a spiritual director of a flock helping cultivate people, you know, helping people grow into them, into maturity in Christ. Like Paul, I, Paul, I love Paul. He's like, 
you know, one of the, I don't have this verse looked up, but he's like, I yearn deeply for Christ to be formed more deeply in you. Like that, that is one of the main functions of our gatherings is to help form Christ in people. Not to just educate the mind with good ideas, not to just get people, quote, saved and baptized to say the sinner's prayer, but to get people inculcated into a process that leads them to grow in Christ, to become more holy as God is holy, to get in contact with God, to know God more deeply, to discover their identity as they discover God. Like, I truly think the core heart of God is to draw us closer to Him, to make us more like Him, which in the process makes us more who we're supposed to be. Our gatherings, our church gatherings, fellowships should be for that purpose of helping draw out in people their true God identity by helping them draw closer to God. And in the process, the church will just naturally start to be this organic fellowship of people all leaning into their giftings and their identities, their God-given identities and callings and mission. And together, as each person discovers their calling and exercises it and is given space and is, is led by mature elders into that place, to, into their own identity calling and then to serve and pour that out. Like as that happens, what you have is a very organic, functioning, healthy church. Let's go to some scriptures because I really like, uh, you know, scripture kind of uses this metaphor of a body with many parts. And I think it's First Corinthians. Uh, we'll, I'll jump there now. Yeah. First Corinthians chapter 12. I think it's chapter 12. Yep. No, no. I don't know. I guess it is 12. Yeah. The, the numbers covered up a little bit. I took screenshots of the verses. Okay, so starting with verse 4, 1 Corinthians 12. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of ministries and the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Let's stop there. So, the Holy Spirit gives each person a different ministry, a different gifting, and the Holy Spirit manifests in each of us differently. Verse 7 says, but, each, but to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So, the idea here that's, that Paul is warming up to is like, hey, every single one of you has a gift from the Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit. You have a gift from the Holy Spirit. You have a ministry from the Holy Spirit. It's all different. It's all unique. But it manifests in you for the common good. So like everybody has a gift, but it's to be used to help build up the fellowship of believers. Okay. And he goes on to explain some of these gifts. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge from the Spirit, to another faith by the Spirit, to another the gifts of healing by the Spirit, to another the producing of miracles, to another prophecy, and to another distinguishing the spirits, to another different kinds of tongues, to another interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually, just as He wills. Now there's an important thing. The Holy Spirit decides your calling. No person, no external source tells you what you're called to. Now, 
we walk with people, people can help us discover our calling. But it's our calling. It's put inside us by the Holy Spirit. And it says, the Holy Spirit wills each. He says, the Holy Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually, just as he wills. The Spirit decides who gets what. And the Spirit also is the one common denominator in all these giftings, right? So it's like the Spirit is the Spirit of unity, and as we exercise our gifts, it kind of draws us together, each of us. As we do different things, still we're unified in doing our different varied gifts and callings actually draw us together in unity by the same Spirit as we exercise them through the Spirit, right? That's really cool. Like, if you're truly walking and your God identity and calling, it will lead you into deeper fellowship with people. It'll draw you closer together and it'll make the church this really close-knit community of love and family. Like, if your church isn't that close, maybe there's not a lot of people walking in their spiritual giftings. That's, that's something to consider. You know, if you feel like your church is just like this dead ritual and, like, and, and the church at large, if people are leaving the church, like... Maybe there's nothing dynamic going on. Maybe there's nothing really happening. Maybe they aren't being drawn into their spiritual giftings. And they're like, well, this is just not, like, there's nothing of value here for me. Like, I think the younger generations are, like, yearning deeply for something significant, intimate, real. And they go to church, and there's the programs, and there's the service, and the sermon, and the songs. But they're like, uh-uh, just not getting it. Like, I want something deep, intimate. Not a show. Not the Sunday morning show. But I want deep community, intimate community. And, and the picture we have here in First Corinthians from Paul is deep community only happens as we each lean, in, lean into our spiritual giftings. That's where how deep community happens. Verse 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, continuing on. For just as the body is one and yet has many parts, by the way, I'm reading the NASB, the New American Standard Bible, for just as the body is one and yet has many parts, and all the parts of the body, and and all, yeah, and all the parts of the body, though they are many, are one body. So also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, whether slave or free, we were all made to drink of one Spirit. For the body is not one part but many. Man, that's really cool. He's like, hey, we can all be different, doing different things, but we're one. We're one body. And what, what draws us together is one body. One bishop? No. One Christ, one spirit. One Christ. Well, repeat after me. There's one Christ and there's one spirit. How are we one in Christ? O-N-E. How are we? W-O-N and O-N-E in Christ. <laughs> through the one spirit, through the one Christ, through the one Lord, through the one baptism. Isn't that cool? Like unity happens when we are tethered to the Spirit, to Christ. Christ is the head, as another scripture says. So 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 14. For the body is not one part, but many. If the foot says, because I am not a hand, I'm not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any less a part of the body. And if the ear says, because I'm not an eye, I'm not a part of the body, it's not for this reason any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole body were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has arranged the parts each one of them in the body, just as he desired. If they were all one part, where would the body be? But now there are many parts, but one body. 
and the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it is much truer that the parts of the body which seem the weaker are necessary, and those parts of the body which we consider less honorable, on these we bestow greater honor, and our less presentable parts become much more presentable whereas our presentable parts have no need of it. But God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to the part that lacked, so that there may be no division in the body, but that the parts may have the same care for one another. And if one part of the body suffers, all the parts suffer with it. If a part is honored, all the parts rejoice with it. Now you are Christ's body and individually parts of it. Man, there's so much deep and rich truth in this. We're all parts of one body. There is a multiplicity of parts. There is a singularity of unity as one body. But here's the thing. I had this phrase called the church of like parts. Typically, what we find in churches is all the hands get together because they really like being the hands. And Paul's talking about this. Like all the eyes get together. They're like, man, it's so good to be eyes. Like, man, shouldn't we all be eyes? Because like typically a lot of times... What you have is, you know, your part is your part and you, it's really good. And so you can be a proselytizer of your part. You know, you can be like, man, I'm a foot. Dang, you know, the, look how, man, just think about the body without the foot, right? You couldn't stand. I mean, so, so what? The leg, the torso, like, man, without the foot, where would you be? And so the feet all like to get together and just talk about how good it is to be a foot. And they're like, yeah, and let's try and get some other people to be feet. Like, you know, we can all get caught up in the joy and the goodness of our part. And sometimes we become proselytizers of our part. And then sometimes whole churches just get lumped together as one part <clears throat> because that, they think that part's so good. And then you have church, churches of, you have the church of like parts where all the hands are over here, separate in their own little church, and all the eyes are over here, separate in their own church, and all the the sense of smells over there, and you have all this segregation, right? And we see this, the division in the church is ripe, I think because we haven't understood how to be a multiplicity of many parts, but one body. We favor special truths, special parts, special functionings over others. That church may be focused on missions. This church may be focused on the poor. That church may be focused on in the inner city. This f church may be focused on the suburbs. That church may be focused on prophetic giftings. This church may be focused on gifts of the Spirit. That church may be focused on teaching. And in some ways, <clears throat> like it wouldn't be so bad if, the, if each individual church wasn't so isolated. If, if, there, if there truly was this concept, in a, even in one city, of all the churches are working together to minister to their city, it wouldn't be so bad. But as it is, that's not even good. It's not good to isolate parts in, in local bodies. And just have one body that's full of a bunch of hands. <clears throat> but here's the other thing. When there's one bishop, proselytizing of a part gets even more ramped up and possible. If your pastor is a foot, he may just preach sermons about how good it is to be a foot and how everybody... And then you've got all the congregants. If you have this, this single bishop who kind of dominates the church and dominates the vision and dominates the messaging, you may have a church that emphasizes a very limited amount of parts in its local body. And so you may have a pastor who's an eye. And then what does he do? He creates a bunch of congregates who are also eyes, who see this eye, this part displayed in front of them. They're like, well, this is my pastor's passion. So now it's my passion. 
You can have pastors who are more passionate about their passion than the passions, individual passions of their congregants. And so they're not creating a multiplicity of parts in a local body. They're creating a singularity of parts or very few parts. <clears throat> then they're not truly pastoring people into their unique giftedness from the Spirit. They're simply trying to pass on their own passion. And then you have a church that has a singularity of parts instead of a multiplicity of parts. What Ignatius did has had far-reaching effects in the way we do church today. I think a multiplicity of elders creates a multiplicity of parts. When you've got 12 or 20 or 30 mature elders all capable of preaching, teaching, leading, pastoring, discipling, you're going to have a more diversity of parts, giftings, callings displayed in the leaders of your church and put on display for people who are new, new to Christ and, and growing. And then you're going to have a lot of different flavors in front of you of a lot of different examples of what your calling could be, right? So it goes like, I'll just tell you, it's taken me a long time, a lot of effort to discover my calling, lean into it fan it into flames and see it mature right so there is a process first of just try, trying different things out right so i would say you should have a lot of options in front of you when you're trying to discover your gifting within the church body and your part but often we have one or two there's the lead pastor there's the senior pastor there's the associate pastor there's the youth pastor there's the worship pastor sometimes there's the administrative pastor but like there's the teaching pastor sometimes, but like, you know, practically speaking, usually there's one or maybe two people behind the pulpit as the main example of what it is to be a Christian, to walk in your giftings, right? And so you may only have one or two different examples of different parts in your church. That's, a not, that's not a great multiplicity of parts. And so you may not have a great example of a lot of different possibilities when it comes to your calling. And guess what? Your God-given calling may have no manifestation in your local body. There may be nobody in leadership modeling your part for you to catch it. There may be nobody in your body that actually cares about your part. And so you may be a Christian trying to discover your part in a church that has no concept of your part. No great ability to even help you catch the fire of it, to catch the flavor of it. And so you may spend your whole life in a local congregation that has no idea of your gifting and so it may never, as a result, be even called out and seen, let alone cultivated and given space to grow and, and be a part of fueling the church, a point into the church, right? Man, this one change in the second century by Ignatius I think has had dire effects in the church because it's taken a church that's meant to have a multiplicity of elders for the purpose of displaying a multiplicity of parts and it's narrowed it down to one one bishop one part one example of one person following Christ so that everybody can only have one person's example of what it means to be a Christian but the church is a body of many parts I mean how many parts are in a body it's like over 2,000 parts make up the body 
there's so many different systems in like a physical body. I'm talking about human body, right? There's so many parts. I think Paul chose, uh, Paul didn't really know that, I don't think. Now he traveled with Luke, who was a physician. So like they knew there were a lot. They may didn't, they might not have known there were 2,000, but they knew there were a lot. And so I, I don't think Paul uses this metaphor of body flippantly or, or lightly. He knows there's so many different parts that make up a human body. And so he's like, hey, hundreds of parts make up a human body. And hundreds of different people with very different giftings should make up your local church body. Man. I, I greatly lament the reality that there is not a great multiplicity in every local body. And uh, let me jump to another scripture. I think this might be Ephesians. But Ephesians really gives this idea that we only grow into Christ, into maturity, when you have a multiplicity of parts. Like, just like Paul saying, like, you can't, the eye can't say to the nose, I don't need you, or the ear, or, you know, you can't have different parts saying, and he's saying the parts that you think might be less presentable, less honorable, they, they desire more, more honor. He's like, he's saying, the people in your church that you think, well, or maybe the giftings in your church that you don't think are so great or don't even think should be a part. He's like, hey, those actually probably deserve even more prominence. Maybe you don't think gifts of the Spirit are that great. Well, then maybe you should focus on those even more. Like, whatever parts are lacking in your church are not, are not prominent. Those are the ones you need the most because they're the most lacking. That's what Paul's saying. Isn't that cool? If your church is focused on missions, abroad, overseas missions... Maybe you need to also start figuring out how to focus on local missions. If your church is focused on the gifts of the Spirit, but not so much on the teaching of Scripture, then what do you need to focus on? Not more gifts of the Spirit, and vice versa. If, you're, if your church is so focused only on sermons, teaching truths, and you're not that, you don't care that much about people being gifted in the Spirit, then guess what? You don't need to focus more on sermons about truth. You need to focus more on the giftings of the Spirit. Like where you lack, where you're deficient, that's where you need to focus. Physically speaking, if you have a deficiency, a vitamin deficiency, then you need to make sure you start getting that vitamin. If you have a vitamin D deficiency, you need to get out into the sun. You need to start taking vitamin D supplements, right? Like it, physically speaking, if your body was not working right and the doctor said, you're deficient in this. Or maybe you need more exercise. You need more cardio because your heart's not good. Like you would just go after that, right? That's the thing that you're deficient in. That's the thing that's hindering the body. And Paul's saying the things that you find the most deficient in the body are the things you need to focus on the most because they're what's lacking and they're hindering your body, your local church fellowship from really embracing the fullness that God has intended it for. <laughs> sorry. My phone is glitching today. It's sorry. So I'm just having some troubles. Bear with me. Oh my goodness. We'll get through this. Let me see if I can find this first. Yeah, Ephesians. This is cool. Um This is Ephesians chapter four, verse fifteen. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects to him who is the head, that is Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. As each part does its work, 
This one says, according to the proper working of each part. The NIV says, as each part does its work, it causes the body to grow up, being built up into the head, which who is Christ. Man, it's not enough to have even half the parts working. Think about a physical body. If half your parts are working, you're dead. If 75% of, your, of the parts in your body are working, you're dead. If 90% of the parts in your body are working, you're probably dead. If 95% of the parts in your body are working, you're probably in a bed, can't move, you can't hardly do anything, you're on life support. You need 100% of the parts of your body, not only working, but working well, healthy, thriving, contributing to the life of the body. This is such an important picture of the life of the church. Man, I mean, I think there's so much work we have to do to creating healthy church bodies where every person is leaning into their God-given, spirit-filled gift and calling. Because if that's not happening, the church won't be healthy. And why is the church shrinking in America, in the West? Why is the church dying? Why are people leaving the church? It's not healthy. Why is it not healthy? Because we have a concept, a structure, an organization in churches that has gone from a multiplicity to a singularity when it comes to leadership, when it comes to modeling, giftings, and callings. We've gotten too specialized. I mean, that's just true of our culture in general. You know, in the medical industry, there's general practitioners and then there's specialists, right? And, you know, it makes sense, right? It's good to specialize, right? But, like, if you just had a surgeon, if a hospital only had a surgeon, the hospital would go out of business. You need nurses. I mean, nurses are the lifeblood of the, of the, of the hospital. I almost said of the church. <laughs> nurses are the lifeblood. Orderlies, like there's so many people that do janitors, um, you know, intake people, clerks, uh, the lab, the pharmacists, like there's the administrators, like there's hundreds of people. It takes hundreds of people to make a hospital work. Specializing is fine as long as you have a lot of different specialists who have specialized in a lot of different things. And the same is true for the church. Often churches, if they're like hospitals and they're trying to really help the sick, spiritually sick, but they've only got an administrator and maybe one general practitioner and no nurses and no orderlies and no surgeons. Man, then they can't really do very much to help people who are sick spiritually because they don't have a multiplicity of parts. They just have a few or maybe just one. And they've decided just to be like one kind of person, one kind of part. So that if the church is failing in anything, it's that we're lacking a multiplicity of parts and we can't really be a functioning body, which is like a functioning hospital, which helps sick people get well. Why? Because we're just teaching one thing. Jesus never designed the church to be a singularity of parts, to function with only a few things going on, a few callings, a few missions, a few ministries, a few giftings. Man, it's crazy. I think this is interesting. Um, in Ephesians, it lists some of the roles, some of the uh, available functions or callings or ministries. Okay, He gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith 
Like, so he's, th- this is a shorter list. And if, uh, first Corinthians, there's a longer list and I'm going to go there, but it's for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry. Like all these particular more leadership callings are placed in churches like a multiplicity of elders. Why? To equip the saints for the building up of the body of Christ so that we all reach unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son to a mature person to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Like, the church shouldn't be about a few people who are really close to God. And that's it. And they, they're the teachers and they're the leaders and they're the ones who are really active in the life of the church. They're the ones that are supposed to create a church that has that is very active in every part. They're supposed to equip saints to be built up as a body, to reach unity in the faith, to have a greater knowledge of Christ, to be mature, full in Christ, reaching the full measure of a full stature. It's like full maturity. Like if there are some people in your local body who are kind of the elders, who are a multiplicity of elders, their job is to create more of themselves, to be lifting people up, always up the church should always be raising others up you should always be training your replacement like that's just true a true in any situation in any group organization the current leaders should always be raising up their replacements why because they're not going to always be there and they can't do everything right moses had this problem the first century church had this problem the apostles were teaching and then some issues arose and they appointed some deacons. They appointed other people to handle those things. They knew how to delegate. They raised people up and they picked people who were strong in the spirit. Not just people who could do stuff and check boxes and fill pre-prescribed roles. They were like, okay, who's really strong in the spirit? Why? Because it's important that you know your spiritual gifting when you try to commit to a calling. Because that's the most important thing. I'm switching back over to my timer. I'm like, oh, my phone is just being really crazy today. So um, actually, I wanted to go back over to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and and their list of calling. I think this is interesting. So we'll go there. See if I got to jump over to it. Yeah, here we go. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 27. You, now you are Christ's body and individually parts of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, then helps, then administrations and various kinds of tongues. All are not apostles, are they? All are not prophets, all are not teachers, all are not workers of miracles, all do not have gifts of healing, all do not speak in tongues, all do not interpret. I think this is interesting. There's an order here. He says, God has appointed in the church first apostles. We're going to talk about hierarchy. Not this time around, but I think it's important that he says first apostles. Apostles. Now, they're, 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 you probably heard of the apostolic church. They emphasize apostleship. Like, this is their thing. Like, we need... They, they, some churches emphasize a succession of apostleship. Right? Like... Like Peter laid hands on people and appointed them as apostles, and those apostles laid hands, and then down through the centuries, everyone's been laid hands on, and well, that sounds nice. And, and the, the Eastern Orthodox really takes this a lot more seriously, a succession of apostleship. And being, uh, you know, to be a bishop, you have to be laid hands on by a bishop who was laid hands on by a bishop that traces all the way back to Peter or one of the first 12. Right? I, I mean, that's just not really practical anymore. 
I, I don't, you know, and I don't think the spirit has to be passed on so literally, right? But there's a, I think there's a reason that here Paul mentions that God first appoints apostles. Apostle literally means sent one, an emissary, an ambassador, a proxy. An apostle, an apostle is someone who knows the character and heart of Christ so well. It's like they are the heart of Christ in a church. They are the, a living example of Christ Jesus in a church. They have a deep spiritual connection to the person of Christ. Paul, you know, Paul said this. He, Paul called himself a late-born apostle. Apostles were defined as people who had actually lived with Jesus, been taught directly by Jesus, had spent time with Jesus. Paul comes along after Jesus dies and says, I actually spent time with Jesus. I think he even names it like 14 years in the desert. <clears throat> he says, I actually spent time with Jesus. That's why I'm an apostle. Apostles are people who have really spent time with Jesus who know Jesus so well, who can embody the heart, character of Jesus. Why? Because a church should first be centered around people who know Christ. Why? Because we're Christians. Because we're followers of Christ. We're disciples of Christ. You can't disciple people into Christ if you don't know Christ. And if you don't have someone in your church who has a deep, mystical, spirit-connected embodiment of Christ, are you even the church? How well are you being the church? if you don't have the central figure of the church displayed in front of you. There's a reason Jesus' model was discipleship, because Jesus displayed a kind of life, a way to live, a way of living as a godly person in the world. It was a way of life, and so he said, this has to be passed on life to life, person to person. This was his model. Not instructions and rules and good thinking and good theology, or even good orthodoxy or orthopraxy, but people who really know Christ, living in Christ-likeness so other people can really know what it looks like to live in Christ-likeness. I mean, this is so important. This is so, man, critical in the church. I'm checking my time. I don't have a lot of time left. First, apostles. Why? Because we need really good examples of Christ in our church first. Second, Prophets. Why? Prophets had words from God. Specific words. It's so important for your church to have someone saying, hey, this is really what I think, or this is really what God's speaking to me about the life of the church, the state of the church, the state of individuals. Prophetic words are, hey, I really see in you a gift of this. Like Prophets can call out people's gifts. They can call out vision for the church. They can help give direction for the church in times of need. There is a real direct connection to God from a prophet, and God speaking through a prophet about callings of individuals, and vision for church. Prophets are so important. Third, teachers. Now, now the other ones, the other, I think, one says preachers and Ephesians. Let me see. Um, try and find it. Evangelists. Pastors are mentioned fourth here. And teachers. So, this, um, Corinthians doesn't mention Pastors. There in Ephesians, it mentions pastors. Fourth, here it mentions teachers. I think teacher and pastor are fairly similar. Not always. But here it's teachers is mentioned third. There, pastors is mentioned fourth and teachers fifth. Think about that. Most churches are centered around teaching pastors, right? Now, I think pastoring is more spiritual soul care. Teaching 
a lot of churches just have teachers and that's it. They don't have apostles. They don't have prophets. They don't have a lot of gifts of healing. They don't have a lot of these other giftings. They have a teacher who isn't necessarily a pastor because I think pastoring and teaching are different. Like you need a good teacher. Most churches are centered around one good teacher. Some, sometimes that teacher is also a good pastor. Sometimes that pastor might also have some prophetic giftings. Hopefully that pastor has some semblance of apostleship. But that's not always true. I think a lot of churches are centered around this one person who might be a good teacher, charismatic, maybe a good pastor, good at soul care, but they may not have much else going on. And so, like, and the thing is though, my recording cut off, so I don't know where it cut off, but no big deal. The thing is, no one person is supposed to embody all these gifts. That's what we started out with. We started out with saying the Spirit has divided the gifts among lots of different people. Your pastor isn't meant to be everything. The church was never one person, all the parts. It's all the parts, all, a lot of people. Like, we don't need a singular, we don't need a multiplicity of parts in a singularity of person. We need a multiplicity of parts in a multiplicity of people. That's the design. One person can't be the end all be all for your church. You can't have one guy on stage who is who's supposed to do everything and be everything and be the example for everyone. And that's just not going to happen. And so what you have is you may have a good teacher in the pulpit, but all he does is, is really raise up, if he raises up people at all, he's just raising up other teachers like himself because there's no apostles and there's no prophets and there's no gifts of healing and gifts of of helps and administrations and there's not all these other callings and giftings in the leadership to raise other people up to and to bring into the life of the church. We need a multiplicity of parts. We need a multiplicity of giftings. We need a multiplicity of people. We need the entire body healthy, thriving, working, doing their part. The church is meant to be a multiplicity of people with a multiplicity of parts. Not a church of light parts. All right, man, this is just the beginning. We're, we're going to spend a lot of time talking about church, church culture, what the church is meant to be. It's, but the first, thing I'm just, the first thing I want to encourage you in is, I think the biggest thing is you have a part to play. Figure that out. Spend time in prayer, in scripture, reading, studying. This is so important. You're not passive. You're not a passive member of your church. You're not a passive congregate you church is not a product to be consumed church is a group of people on fire for god discovering their individual spirit-led calling and gifting and fanning it into flames helping it grow and then exercising it in the body man it's so much bigger so much bigger than a lot of times what we see and what we're participating with so my first encouragement is discover your gifting lean into it walk in it learn grow god can lead you even if your church isn't the second thing is, it's not meant to be one person on stage, one elder, one leader, one preacher, one pastor. It's meant to be a multiplicity of leaders equipping the saints, helping people really discover their calling and giftings. Hey guys, thanks for listening. This has been a Construction Monk podcast. I'm your host, Jay Randall Ori. You can catch more content at www.moderncontemplative.com. I, I appreciate you guys listening. And I, man, I'm really excited about this series. I really hope it challenges you to think about your role in church and the kind of church that you are a part of and how to make it better. That's the whole goal is how can we do this church thing better? All right, love you guys. Bye.